few minutes to look around and see who's here and who I haven't seen in a long time. Is that really you, James? It's been a long time since we've seen each other. How are you? Everything well with you? I'm just, I'm pleased, you know, people sort of, it's been years, so I'm glad to see you. Who else have I never met? What's your name? Christina, where do you live? I'm glad you decided to come today. Why did you decide just today to come? So, because my friend Mia here invited me. I didn't want to. It's interesting because uh, this is one of the few classes where you don't have to sign up. And you never have to write down your name, and no one knows anything about you. I was at a teacher meeting all day yesterday, and uh, uh, one of the things that they talked about was uh, what are the things that uh, uh, what are the things that our community really appreciates. It's kind of a little bit of a feedback, Laura. It's a little bit of a feedback. Let's see. So we meet together as a teacher, teacher's council body uh, four times a year. And there's only some amount of evaluation. How are we doing? What are we doing well? What should we do more of? What should we do less of? What should we stop doing? Uh, and uh, so one of the things I was thinking about uh, during that meeting, they said X percent of people said this and X percent of people said that. And I said, where did they say it? And they said, well, they said it on their evaluation forms. I said, what evaluation forms? (laughs) They said, well, I know that when there's a retreat, they have evaluation forms at the end of it. They said, when there's a a day-long that people sign up for, then two days later you get an email electronically says, you want to rate this class, how was it? I don't know if I like that. <laughs> It'd be interesting. And X amount of people said this and this and this. So I was a little bit interested. I was sitting right next to Donald, you know, and I'm waiting for them to say something about Wednesday morning. And I said, how about Wednesday morning? And they said, well, we don't know anything about Wednesday morning <laughs> because nobody writes down anything. We don't have anybody's name. We don't have any demographics. So they were showing demographics, who comes, how old are they? But you kind of match all the demographics. Donald has a message for you. By the way, I'm going to come back and find out who hasn't been here. Donald, uh, who here comes from the East Bay? There's nobody. Uh-huh. Donald is here next week and the week after, but he's broken his wrist. So it's in a cast. So he can't drive. So um, it's against the law. I said, well, what about people who have one arm? They drive. He said, no, you need special equipment, equipment for that, Lucy, and, and they, you need a special driver's license for that. He said, I can't do it. It's not legal. So uh, he asked me to ask you if anybody wants to pick him up and take him home next week and the week after. Can you do that? Sure. What's your name? Jeff. Jeff, 
You want to know his phone number? Okay, I know his phone number. So. <laughs> I was just checking. I know his phone number. You could always call Spirit Rock and I'll tell you his phone number. But if you'll call him right away and tell him, yes, I'll do it, uh, you, you need to pick him up by nine. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, oh, good. I did that. So while I'm into announcements, uh, on this Saturday, I am teaching a day long here, uh, which I do very few of, actually. I'm doing this one with Noli Way Alexander, who's one of our newer teachers. And uh, I, I really, uh, I did a, a, a day long with Grace Fisher a while back, because she's also a new teacher. And I really wanted to introduce her to the community. And Noli Way is going to come with me this Saturday. So uh, this is an invitation to encourage you to come next Saturday. How many people can I encourage to come? Well, come? Are you already signed up? No? Then do it. Do it. <laughs> Credits. Does it say so on the thing? Since Noeway and I are both, I'll find out for you, even if it's not listed, if we can't do it, because Noeway and I both have enough credentials, and if you need the six units, why shouldn't you get it if you pay for the day long? And if ever you are constrained for lack of funds, you can come, and there's a magic way to get in. If you don't have funds, you come and you say, I can't afford to pay this, and they say, "Please be our guest." That's the way it works. So, so. Huh? isn't that good? The only way it doesn't work is uh, on benefits. When there's a benefit day, then. You, but anyway, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's always true. You can hold me responsible if it's not. Okay. So now, welcome, and I'm glad you're here. And come again. Who else has not been here before? to this community. Yeah, what's your name? Well, I've been to the Spirit Rock community, but not to this. Not to this. What's your name? I'm Heather. And where do you live? I'm glad you came. Was there a special reason that you came today? My soul needs a little Everybody these days. You know, by the way, that, that that's a statistic that's showing up in all kinds of magazines now that um, in the therapy world, people say people are looking, are approaching therapists because they're, they're finding that they don't feel like themselves mentally. And the people who are already in therapy are, are reporting that they're finding it harder to keep their emotions feeling in a reasonable way because we're all too startled all the time with... So this is a good place to come. You know, one of the things that I think about is it takes a certain amount of time to come here. You have to drive here, and you drive through the countryside, and you see the cows, and you see the turkeys, and you see what's going on. And it's like a different world. It's quieter here. You know, we don't talk loud. No phones ring. 
There are no flashing images. So I think that there's a way in which coming is just good, just like that. Who else hasn't been here before? What's your name? Carol. Carol? Why did you decide to come today? That's great. I think we have, I don't know, I heard the, the number of volunteers signed up uh, here, and it's in the hundreds of people who are on the list. It's really great. It's really great. If I were here, I would volunteer, if I were going to volunteer, I'd volunteer in the bookstore, because it's nice to hang around in there. Who else? Why did you come back today, James? It's just a... It is rough in the world. How many people have been watching the images of Houston? We'll talk a little bit about that. I've been watching because there's so many things I think about, which I'm sure you think about as well. First of all, the heroism is incredible. There are people carrying people. I saw people lifting people out of open windows who were like on the second floor. Their windows are open and they're lifting them out and putting them into boats. There was one particular picture in the newspaper the other day of um, seven men, I counted them, pushing a truck out of a a river, or what was now a river, and trying to put... The seven men pushed up against a truck and, they're all, and you see the back of them, they're all pushing. And uh, they're all naked to the waist and in their underwear. And they have different color underwear. And they're different color guys. You can see from their back that they're different color guys. And it, I just looked at it and I thought, that's the way it is. Got different color guys and different color underwear <laughs> pushing that boat out. And it doesn't matter that they're different color guys. It's just one of those moments where you can do years of diversity education and you show a picture of guys pushing a truck out like that. Um, And, you know, in terms of diversity and you see people helping people, nobody stops because somebody's any particular kind of a color. What was uh, one of the images that was like, you probably saw this a few days ago, is uh, an early image of a nursing home that got suddenly flooded. Did you see that? And a bunch of old women sitting in wheelchairs with the water up to here, with plates of food floating around, you know, that they got rescued, all of those women. But that meant that somebody went in there in waiters or something and got them all out. And they all look a little bewildered too because they're old women and they're not in a good shape. And, and it's just so kind to go and get them. There was a picture of an interior of a truck to which they had hoisted up or had a, a machine that hoisted up uh, wheelchairs and brought them in so they... The truck was all full of old people in wheelchairs, all parked in there, and then the truck was going to take off and go someplace else. 
and there was a woman sitting in a wheelchair who did not look oriented in time and space, but anyway had her eyes open. And one of the aid workers, a big guy, was stooping down and talking to her as if she was all there and saying to her, you know, it's all going to be all right. And she said not relevant things, like, oh, I know. I mean, it just was not relevant. And he was so kind, and he continued to be really talking to her as if she was really tuned in very well. And it's just such a display of what happens. I'll tell you one more, and then you'll tell. There was a man who was unloading his boat from the back of a truck from a boat trailer, and the interviewer, newscaster, was saying, where'd you come from? And he named some town up in Texas considerably north of there, so not involved in the floods. And they said, oh, you live far from here? He said, yeah, I drove down. They said, why did you come? He said, I came to save lives. You know, it's like, I mean, it makes me weepy. What was your most moving scene from there? Oh, that's what they call themselves, the Cajun Navy. Did you hear that term? All the local people, that's Cajun territory, that's southern Cajun. And all the people with the little private boats who were in and out, they, they said in one particular area of Houston, they did 170 boat rescues yesterday. Individual boat rescues, getting people out. It's a little bit like Dunkirk with individual boat rescues where you don't have to go out, but you go anyway. I heard that term as well. It's really, it evokes tears, but it's comforting tears. People are kind. You forget that with the tenor of the times, you know. It's so mean-spirited most of the time, and what you hear is mean-spirited. What if we got what if we got up every morning and the and the news was hundred and seventy people knocked themselves out yesterday to save other people, you know, that instead of what were you gonna say? I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. That's really great. <laughs> Who else was going to say? Yeah, Carol. Yeah, I saw a lot of people in rescue boats carrying their dog. And you can't leave your dog. I mean. Yeah. Somebody was going to say something, yeah. I'm probably completely out of line here, but there was a floods in Nepal, in Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Are we concentrating on 15 people in Harvey, Houston? And I'm concerned that America is just far too here. I am too. I know. 
And no, 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 I know. And I heard the same broadcast and I thought about that and I was going to mention that okay. as well later on. That that I know about it going on. Not only that, but but famines in other part of the world and uh, and fifty people dying every day in this country who kill themselves as a result of post traumatic trauma of being in the war. And the number of accidents by guns or not accidents by guns that happens every day. It's not a tremendous amount of people, but it's a tremendous amount of people who are closer to us and what I think is going to happen, what I hope is going to happen, what I think that the Buddha thought was going to happen, is that if we paid attention to how much we care about those who are dear to us, then it will open our hearts to become sensitive to those who are not so close to us and to make them part. Just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings. And what I've been thinking about ever since is how come we don't think about these people in Bangladesh have this without this kind of rescue services and without hospital facilities like we do. And what's going to be the crucial moment that's going to get people to change and say, not just us, everybody on this little planet, not just us. No, I think about that also, about what's going to cause people to have that. Yesterday I got an email from uh, uh, my cousin Henry. My first, I have a very small family, and I have two cousins. That's it. And... Uh, my cousin Henry called to say that his son, David, who lives in Houston, has now gotten out. And I, realized, I didn't realize that David's house was imperiled and that he's out with his wife and his two-month-old baby. And they, they got rescued and the rescuers on route to a, uh, where they were taking them stopped at a dry Walmart so they could run in and get diapers. On, on the way and as soon as I hear that David's there then I realize that you feel, oh David's there the whole of Houston is there but now David's there there's a way in which I'm really counting on people's sense of their individual connections to really make us think about there's a whole world out there and let's think about it and lower the volume of what we do were you going to say something as well? No, but maybe, 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 and maybe it's it's going to be some uh, what's a better word than watershed moment. Uh, maybe it's a turning point moment because so many people, nine thousand people, have been evacuated. Um,
Uh, well, there was a news report when somebody was uh, questioning the mayor about shouldn't you have given an evacuation order three days before. He said, well, we couldn't have done it really because you don't know that the storm isn't going to turn at the last minute. I'm glad to see you. <laughs> All right, we're making our way around to introductions. Hold on, Mark. Uh, <laughs> uh, that... Um, he said, we couldn't have done it because the highways would have been totally jammed. If, if six, six million people suddenly get on the highway or three million people get on the highway, then nobody goes anywhere and everybody's stuck there. So you think about it, that particular image of we're really all stuck wherever we are and it's therefore incumbent on us to make the planet safe for everybody and spread out the food and spread out the resources. Because we can't go anywhere, and it's the only planet we have, and it's the only place that we can be, and our people here. People say, well, you know, maybe we could move to Mexico, or maybe we'll move to the top of the Rocky Mountains. Most people can't move any place. Even people with resources, their families are here, their stuff is here, their life is here. That would be a way where we can... Uh, I love the term shelter in place where we can all be in our place and feel sheltered. But we didn't say hello to everybody. So we'll go back over here. Those people I haven't seen in a long time. So Mark. <laughs> yeah, you're Mark. Uh, how come you decided to come today? I haven't seen you in so long. Well, to see you and... I'm very glad. That's right. Anyway, somebody else over here had not been here ever before. I want to say hello. What's your name? Susan. Where do you live? Forestville. That's a far ride. Did you come from Petaluma and back? Yeah. yeah. Beautiful ride. How come you came today? It's the beginning of a new year for me today. Oh, happy birthday. Happy Happy birthday. That's good. Jeff, is this the first time you've been here? Yes. Why did you come today? Uh, I've, I've been to Spirit Rock many times. We're very nice to visit, even though, even though no one knows that we like it because they don't have questionnaires. <laughs> no, I told them that. I said, people come, don't worry about it. <laughs> Everybody said hello who's never been here before. Oh, go ahead. Are you sure? Yes. It's only hello. <laughs> What's your name? Deborah. Deborah. No, Deborah, I'm glad that you spoke out. Because uh, one of the things I'd like people to feel is ready to say something. I don't, you know, I, sometimes I think I can't hold the floor too long, so... Uh, my name is Maria, and I live in Mexico. Oh. I'm very close to the Mexican culture. Yeah. I'm happy I'm traveling just, just for a few days, and I just wanted to see you. Are you part of a meditation group in Mexico? Yes. Yes, my husband has a center. 
Is your husband Sergio? Yes, he is. A couple then comes for Sergio. La semana pasada. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's your husband. Okay. I'm glad you came. Okay. So here we are. What I want, what, what we already did, what I wanted us to talk about today, we we uh, we were good for each other. One of the things I think that happens when we come here is different. If we all made a plan, okay, we're going to sit home on Wednesday morning and meditate in our own houses for um, a half hour or forty minutes, starting at ten or ten thirty, it wouldn't be the same as if we came here and looked at each other and looked out the windows and had a quiet space where we felt safe. It's good for us to come. I miss it when I'm not here. One of the things I think pe- reasons I think people take up a contemplative practice is um, the obvious one of giving the mind a little time to relax itself. We live a very fast-paced life. There is more material in one Sunday New York Times of information than there was in an entire library in 1700 in Heidelberg University. I mean, there's just, there's so much information every day and available all over the place. Actually, I I mentioned last week there's a book by Naomi Klein called No is Not Enough, talking about response to what's going on in a way that makes it stops what's going on in this country and really thinks about this country as part of a planet that needs a lot of help. So just divorcing oneself from what's going on and not being an activist doesn't make you feel better. But there's a way in which I feel like my activism in the world depends on periods of time where I can feel that I am letting my mind recharge itself and also clear itself. Let's do let, let's sit and meditate for a while. I'll give some instructions. But um Maybe I'll start the instructions with a story from Thich Nhat Hanh. After Thich Nhat Hanh left Vietnam, where he's a young monk during the time of the fighting there, he uh, relocated himself to France with a community of refugees. Uh, I'm not even sure whether it's in the same exact place where Plum Village is now, but it might be. But anyway, he was living there in a community of refugees, and he had a young boy who was, uh, I think, orphaned, who was living with him in his room uh, that he was caring for. And he said, the the boy came in one day and said, "Um, Uncle, I'm very thirsty. And he said, I poured him some apple juice. 
and put it on the table. He said, but you know, it was that kind of apple juice that's not filtered, so it's kind of cloudy. And um, the boy said, Uncle, that doesn't look good to me. And he went back outside, and then he came back in sometime later, and the apple juice had all settled out, and the top of the glass was clear. He said, oh, now that looks good. So he drank the apple juice. Then he said, Uncle, when you sit and meditate, is your mind like that apple juice? And I have thought about that. I heard that story from Thich Nhat Hanh maybe 35 years ago. But I've thought about it a lot because it's only one aspect of what we're doing here is letting the mind settle down. Maybe the most important thing what we're doing sitting here is letting the mind settle down so that we'll be able to see clearly so that we'll be able to act with clarity in the world, so that we'll be able to be emissaries of peace in our communities and certainly in our own minds and hearts, and so that we'll be able to make wise decisions. There's all kinds of reasons why letting the mind calm down is step one. It's not the point. It's on the way to the point, and it's a facilitator of the point. It's one of the reasons that we're able to make clearer and wiser decisions if we're not confused with a mindful of confusion. <coughs> so if you want to use that image, you could just sit and think apple juice. <laughs> or you can, well, in the spirit of Thich Nhat Hanh, <clears throat> he'd uh, suggest to people, here was his instructions and you can try them and you can do them if you want or not. He'd say, uh, first of all, when you sit, make yourself comfortable. Sometimes he'd say, smile a little bit. I remember somebody challenging him about that and saying, you know, why should I smile if I don't feel happy? It's not authentic. He said, no, it's not about feeling happy. It's just about smiling. (laughs) Your face is more relaxed if you curl up the corners of your mouth. It just is. Sometimes he um, invited people to say to themselves as they sat, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing in, out, I smile.
I like to use that as a mantra. What I often do is think of that and then I switch to a slightly different one. That's this one. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Again, on the in-breath and the out-breath. Sometimes if I get tired of that, I just sit. And if my mind is easy, things come and go, I just leave it alone. And if my mind gets startled or preoccupied or caught up in a discursive thought or falls asleep, I might go back to one of those two intentions, breathing in. I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend.
Should we sit a few more minutes in this quiet space? You usually mention people we're thinking about who are in special circumstances and sometimes lovely circumstances and more often what we're thinking about is dire circumstances. Or hopeful circumstances where really acknowledging the hope that we always have for a good outcome. Because I've been watching so many faces of people in the images of people being saved and thinking particularly about the first responders who keep going out every day and all day and all night hoping that as many of them stay safe as can possibly be as they do the kind of work that they're doing Who are you thinking about this morning?
I'm thinking about how listening to people we know and people we don't know, talking about um, the blessings and the difficulties um, in their lives. I think it's, uh, and discovering that when we listen to people talk about a difficulty, our heart resonates with compassion. And listen to something that's a blessing. <coughs> our heart lifts up with empathic joy. Even we don't know the people or the circumstances. On the one level, it's, I think, restorative and uplifting and supportive to feel heard. But the other part of it is to feel reminded that um, this is the human story. And we all keep holding up our particular end of it. And most of all, that we can do it. May everyone be all comforted by loving connections. I asked my friend Jack yesterday, we were in a meeting together, and I said, who was it who said that really beautiful thing about the fabric of the world is all suffering, and we all are holding up our particular corner of it, but you can't put it down, and this is the only corner that you've got, and it's the only corner that you can address, because it's what you've got. You can't put it down. But to know that everybody else is holding up their little piece wherever they are. You don't, have the, you don't need to hold the suffering of the whole world all by yourself. Everybody is busy holding up their piece of it. And he said, I don't remember who said that, but I think it's a Sufi. I'll look it up, I'll let you know. I remember, though, um, years ago, seeing a film... And that ended, I don't remember the, the import of the film, it was, I think, a documentary about the beauty of life, the, extraordinarily, the extraordinary thing of life, not what's happening, but that it's happening. And uh, it, it ended with a line from Thomas Merton, who said, everything is suffering and everything is compassion. And I thought about that, you know, that that the first noble truth of the Buddha is that life is uh, dukkha, I guess, <coughs> excuse me, translated as suffering. And it, it doesn't mean suffering, that doesn't mean that every single moment of life is agonizing. It means that built into the fabric of life is the truth of change all the time. And with the truth of change, sometimes things change 
and we're pleased with the change and sometimes they change and we're saddened by the change. I don't think there's an in-between because we don't notice it. That really, you know, uh, that what we really notice is things that move us and that we're pleased to have or not pleased to have. But that everybody makes it through. Well, not everybody makes it through some people and their lives earlier. But for the most part, <coughs> let me turn this off till I finish the coughing business. I often end up talking about things change and things change and things end. And I remember, and the Buddha said, in fact, that that particular awareness of things end is the most important awareness that you could have. That that's one of the three awarenesses. He called them the character characteristics of experience that every single thing that starts ends sometimes that's actually quite sustaining I mean if you're in the middle of labor pains then you can say you know by tomorrow morning this is all going to be finished you know and, and you'll have a baby so you can say okay I'm thinking about tomorrow morning I can make it through Sometimes things are agonizing and they're not going to have a good end. I, I remember my friend Tamara was dying and she knew it. She was in hospice. And she said, this is taking too long. I said, no, it's going to end. And she said, um, this is a, it's a sweet piece of the story. I'm glad to tell it to you. I said, it's going to end soon, sweetheart. But you know. She said, oh, wait a minute. She said, wait a minute, she said, I'm, the nurses are fixing the, the, uh, the uh, sheets and the blankets around my feet to make me more comfortable. She said, you know, the nurses here have been really extraordinary. They're really wonderful. I'm so thankful to them. And I thought, here's tomorrow in the last, like, two minutes of her life or two hours of her life, thanking the people around her for keeping her comfortable. And... It, which is one of several stories I won't tell you now because it's I really anyway where I thought that she had a remarkable capacity to live until she died by looking at what she was grateful for and in the moment I'm dying but the nurses here are wonderful the Buddha said what you really needed to know was everything was passing and there was a time early in my own meditation practice where I remember saying to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, in an interview, I just suddenly get it that everything passes. Here I've been here for 10 days or something, and 
Uh, I look so forward to being here, and it's been an extraordinary experience of, I guess, a lot of important insights for me. I said, but it's coming to an end. I said, you know, I'm so struck with the fact that everything ends, and I'm a pretty dramatic person anyway, and I am actually struck by things in a peculiar way, and at that time particularly, of seeing the endings of things. I'd see a, a flower, a rose start to open in the garden outside my window. And I think that rose is so beautiful, but I right away think three days from now this rose is not going to look good. Or it was on that level, or the sun is setting. It's such a beautiful sunset, really beautiful. And then I'd get all weepy that it was all gone. And I'd say, all this passing away and passing away, it's so, it's so sad. And he said, it's not sad, Sylvia, it's just true. And then I thought later, I said, okay, because I'm so nice with teachers, you know, I never would say, you have no heart. But anyway, <laughs> no poetry. I, I, I would not, first of all, I admire him very much and I love him tremendously. But he said, no, it's not sad, Sylvia, it's just true. I said, okay. But then I thought later, it is just true, but it's very poignant. It's very poignant. Whatever we have isn't going to last in this form. I mean, my children are all in their 50s. I have no idea how they got that one, except for the one that's 60. I mean, that, that, it happened overnight, I remember, when they were born. That's very poignant. You can't bring back that feeling. You can remember it kind of... And it's all right, because I have grandchildren who are way past that now. But, but there's a poignancy about losing things. Anyway, it was one of the things that the Buddha said you needed to recognize in order to really be alive in this world, that nothing lasts. So on the one hand, it's helpful if you're in the middle of labor, if you're having an... Uh, you probably do this. I'm having some big dental procedure happening got all that apparatus in your mouth and it's very uncomfortable. You think to yourself, an hour from now I'll be out of here having lunch with a friend. So you put your mind ahead to where you are. So the fact that things end, nobody would go to the dentist if you had an open-ended appointment. You never knew when you were going to get out. You know? You'll get out of here maybe. But, so you kind of depend on impermanence. But still, everything is gone, everything is gone, and pretty soon your life also, and other people's. But I think the value of knowing that, that everything is really temporal, is that uh, it brings you to life rather than turning you off to life, that I don't want to miss a minute of it. My friend Tamara, in the hospice, when I... uh, I took my daughter to shop in, um, where is it where you try on clothes all in the same? Lomans. Hmm? Lomans. My friend Tamara was a big aficionado of Lomans and a very devout fashion fashionista. And I took uh, one of my daughters on her birthday to San Francisco to the Lomans. And Tamara's in Florida getting ready to die. And uh, I always associate Lomans with Tamara, and we're in the waiting room, in the dressing room, you may not know, 
that in moments you don't get your own dressing room. You try on the clothes in a big room with other women trying on their clothes. And all those women feel free to weigh in on how your clothes look. I shopped with my mother in the Lomans in Brooklyn before I got married for a honeymoon outfit. And I knew that they looked good when people said, you know, if you're not buying that, could I try it on you? Everybody really weighs in. So Liz was trying on some stuff that looked good. And I said, you know what? Let's call tomorrow and uh, tell her about this. And I was with Liz because in Lomans, on your birthday, you get some big percent off. And it was her birthday. So I called tomorrow. With all, this is all in the Lomans dressing room with other people. I said, guess where I'm calling you from? It's Liz's birthday. She said, I bet you're in Lomans in San Francisco. I said, I am. She said, what she got? I said, well, she's trying on this and that and that. And... She's got a Masoni sweater on. She's got a Masoni sweater. Give her the phone. I want to talk to her. So I'm sitting here, and she's talking to... Tamara's talking to Liz. What kind of sweater? What does it look like? What else? You have that kind of a skirt. Don't miss that skirt. Buy the skirt. That's great. That's wonderful. So anyway, then the end of the story is we bought what we bought, and we left. And I called Tamara the next day to check in on her and to say thank you very much for really being so enthusiastic with Liz with the stuff. And she said, no, thank you very much for calling me. They gave me the opportunity to do that. I love that. And Tamara was in the hospice at this point. So that really, until the end, one of the ways that we connect is we, we have this capacity to feel for other people. You've got a Masoni sweater. Don't miss that, you know. Then you're alive until the end. Every year I understand that particular thing about the importance of understanding uh, temporality. We have a very little time, or a long time, comparatively speaking, to live. A couple of people, to show this mother, did she stop driving? Okay, so she's coming up to her 100th birthday to stop driving. Lives by herself. Cooks Thanksgiving dinner. So if you want to have a role model to be up against, that's it. The Buddha said there were three things that you were supposed to realize that would liberate your mind from suffering. One of them is temporality. The second one is the fact that the desire in the mind to have things different from the way they are when they can't be different from the way they are is suffering. That's really that the whole of it that when you sometimes hear it as the second noble truth the cause of suffering is craving it has a wrong kind of a feeling it has a feeling of craving like uh, a person who craves um, a drink or craves some chocolate pie. It's not that kind of a crave. It's like you need things to be otherwise when they can't be. And on the one hand, it seems perfectly reasonable. Things are the way they are. They are the way they are. Sometimes you can change them. If you're running a fever and you feel uncomfortable, 
you go see some medical personnel, they say, do this, do this, do this, you treat it, you feel better, you don't not respond. But if you get an illness like tomorrow and it has used up all the treatments, then you say, this is what it is. I've got this. I certainly wish I didn't. And buy the Masoni sweater, it's a great thing. You know, we can stay alive while saying you wish it was otherwise. Ace. Actually, I'll tell you another story, but instead of distracting it, you say to yourself, let's say I'm you and I'm meditating, um, and maybe I'm, I'm thinking about the political situation or the news or something I just heard, which is actually presented in a way, this would be a fun experiment. How many people here listen to NPR? Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. So you don't even have to do the experiment. You know the answer. I have NPR in my car. This is a full disclosure. I have NPR in my car and I have a television set at home that when I go by to it, it's amazing, it's a talking television. It uh, says to me, it it telepathically sends me messages. It says, turn this on. There's such an exciting coverage of the really incredible political scene right now You'll turn this on, it'll be very uh, arousing because it's just so fascinating. None of the books that you have that are thrillers can compete with what's going on here. Turn this on. See, after not, and I turn it on quite a lot, like some commentators better than other commentators. But it doesn't, I've discovered that when I listened in from another room to the television in my house, or when I listen in a public place to the television station of the channel that broadcasts the other side of the news, they both have the same tone of voice. It's outrage. Can you believe that this and this happened? Can you believe that this and this? They're really designed to outrage. You listen to NPR, they could say, the sky has fallen, and now we'll have some Peruvian music. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, they absolutely have. <laughs> so it's actually good for your, <laughs> for your nervous system. I'm sure they tra- train people not to get. That's what reporters were supposed to do. That's in the old days of Walter Cronkite. You read the news. I used to think, I can't remember how I got exactly here, but what I wanted to talk about is that the three things that the Buddha said, this is important to know. It's important to really get impermanence. It's really important to understand that the cause of suffering is struggling with things that are beyond your control. That doesn't mean politics are beyond my control, but not entirely. I can call uh, uh, elected representatives. I can march, I can sign petitions, I can send money, I can support um, uh, the, uh, uh, well, my, my two things that I support is uh, 
the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, just because they've been doing it for 150 years, and they help refugees. They do not have to be Jews. They have, don't have to. They say we are doing this not because they are Jews, it's because we are Jews. And it was started by Jews in the 19th century to help newly emigrated Jews. Now they help refugees everywhere. It's also true of. Um, so I sent to them. I sent to the Southern Poverty Law Center because they do such extraordinary uh, teachings on diversity, and they uh, and they support and litigate uh, transgressions against people's civil rights. But I find that by, by giving a donation to something, I feel like I did something. I don't have to actually be doing I am doing something. The difference is uh, when this says the cause of suffering is not being able to accommodate, is struggling with how things are. You can respond to how things are, but to be outraged by it, this shouldn't be happening. It is happening. It's happening. It's the same as... Um, it is happening, but there's a way in which when I say, okay, global warming is happening because of human behavior for the last several hundred years. But now that means that a lot of simultaneous human behavior can make a difference on the global warming. I heard uh, on that same steady NPR this morning, they were saying that uh, more and more countries in the world have already shifted over to non-fossil fuels. There's tremendous global investment in non-fossil fuel. That it's the new horizon for corporations that you might think of as being corporations that supported fossil fuel are now actually supporting wind and um, solar because that's where things are going these days. They could change. So those are two of the things that the Buddha said. You have to really get this. It's not about not being indifferent to what's happening. It's being saying, it's being able to say, this is what's happening. What should I do next? What can I do next? Rather than, it's the, it's the struggle. The insistence that things be other than what they are. And the third of them is the truth of interconnectedness. That things don't happen just like this. That, uh, I always, as I say that, wherever I am teaching that, I'm going to say it's a lawful cosmos. My teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to say it's a lawful cosmos. And he has a very distinct uh, New Jersey accent. And I thought what he was saying was it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and because, uh, because I was kind of depressed that, at that point in my life and melancholy, I thought he was right. It's a lawful cosmos, so that the, the, the global warming is happening because of what people did over a lot of time. The 
political situation is what it is because of a lot of different things that a lot of different people did. Sometimes I, I hear actually in Dharma circles people say, well, the real truth, the real, the real villain is greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's a way, at least this morning, when I could say, well, really, that is the real problem, is greed, hatred, and delusion. But there's no way that we can have human beings with preferences and impulses and suddenly say we're not going to have impulses to with greed and hatred. What we need is actually a little bit more impulse control. That would be good. That the, um, the world got full of people with more um, devastating ways to express the greed, hatred, and delusion faster than people matured their minds. I mean, in evolution, maybe if we'd had another several millennia, we'd all be kinder before we had all these really destructive toys. But if you think about that everybody had a part in whatever is happening, it's so helpful to keep me from being um, villainizing anybody. I think I told you that I had that on... I'm trying to think about if it would, would have been, yeah, it was a week ago Tuesday, so I probably told you last Wednesday, when I was watching the news and I saw the particular press conference in which uh, after the president was finished reading from the teleprompters and was making extemporaneous comments, which then kind of blew up because he said all kinds of terrible things. You could watch him really lose it in front of your eyes and I was watching him and you know maybe I'm a clinician I'm a psychologist but it's as if you watch somebody and you watch a Jekyll and Hyde kind of transformation right in front of your eyes and first of all I watched it happening and I've, I've had a moment of distress for him like how embarrassing he's like all of a sudden having a psychotic interlude in the full view of everybody who's watching. And I'm sure, I was sure his handlers look at uh, uh, Mr. Kelly. General Kelly is really wincing. And I thought his family, they must be wincing somewhere. And Americans all over the place have to be wincing because you see, it's like melting in front of you. And I had a moment that I did, I did I don't know if I want to call it compassion because maybe it elevates it so much, but I actually didn't feel angry at him. I felt really sad for him. Like, you know, he's a really sick guy. I'm not supposed to say that here, I don't think. <laughs> and you're not the only ones hearing it because this always gets recorded. But it's all right. They're printing that now in the New York Times so I can actually... I'll, I'll preface I think he is anyway. But, uh, and if he is, it's, a, it's just really a sad time for the United States. The, really, the point of telling you the story is not to tell you he's a sick man. I think 
maybe if he is, we all know that. It's to say what a relief it was in my own mind to skip the moment of err, you know, the, the moment of meanness, the moment of a, of a... All of a sudden I got converted to feeling bad for him. He's a sick guy. As is everybody who's doing that. I don't want to pretend that I'm over and, you know, I have plucked out all the roots of greed and hatred and delusion from my mind because I haven't. But on my best days, and yours also, because I saw when I just told the story, a lot of people said yes, that you also feel compassion for him. He's a sick man. I think people are knowing that things will happen. But it's such a relief not to have to have anger and to realize we could convert the world I think the point of what we're doing is really working on a kind of conversion. Which gets us... Wait, somebody had their hand up. Yeah. Um, talking about that, I was listening to KGO the other Well, and now we come back to the whole, thank you very much, because we came back to the whole beginning when we started two hours ago and talking about why are we doing the apple juice? Why are we letting the mind settle down? Because we have really, uh, we're all kind of nervous, so we have, uh, because you know, it's, this is the most uh, kind of peremptory or startling times I've ever lived in. You don't know when you get up in the morning what the news is going to be and where and and how it's going to be presented in an alarming way. But to be able to say, uh, "Wow, everybody who's doing this really needs to be restrained from doing it." You know, like you have a sick person, you put them in the hospital. They have uh, the the state prison in Vacaville is for people who've done crimes who are mentally ill. Um, I remember when my husband, many, many years ago, was doing his two years of obligatory army service. He got, uh, he was a division psychiatrist. He was a man in his mid-twenties, and he's got a division of 60,000 men, and he's the only psychiatrist. It was sort of ridiculous, but... He had to testify several times at courts martial. And one of the questions is, do you think this person is mentally healthy enough to stand trial? And what he normally said is, anybody who does a crime is not mentally healthy. So they'd stopped asking him to be a witness. <laughs> because he was not... And it was not helpful to their cause. But actually, that, that's true. Anybody who commits a crime. All right, so maybe you think, well, in literature, Jean Valjean, Les Miserables, he steals a loaf of bread. Um, 
it's an interesting thing because you think about what's the motivation for that. Um, it's a long, that's a big story now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, what kinds of stories? I'm, I, don't, I don't want to tell the wrong story with the wrong thing. And maybe it's Les Miserables where uh, somebody is taken in by uh, a cleric and given shelter for the night and then he leaves in the morning and he takes a, a, oh, a, a silver goblet or something and it's missing and the police for some reason stop this person, they find the goblet, they recognize it as belonging to this cleric, they take him back and say, we found this guy, he stole this from you. And the cleric says, oh no, I gave him that as a gift. You remember that? It's Les Mis? Oh, now I'm getting more and more helped out. Thanks so much, Marty. It is Lehman's. Yeah, Anne. Uh, I, I heard, or rather I read some research uh, several years ago that said that 60% of the people in the prisons have brain damage. Yeah. And yeah, and they have, they have often, a huge percentage of people have learning disabilities, and they didn't do well in school, and then they got into more and more trouble because they didn't do well in school. And in, uh, if, you're, if you're an affluent person and your child is going to a private school and they're not doing well in school, uh, the school will come and find you and talk to you about, we'll get them some special ed, we'll get them special tutoring. They, and if you're not an affluent person, and you're in a class with 40 people in a poor neighborhood with an overworked teacher and one thing or another. All those circumstances. By the way, did it, remember a few weeks ago I mentioned about Dunkirk. Did you, how many people saw Dunkirk? So enough. Do you, the, the mother, there's, a, there's a scene in Dunkirk. It's too long to tell you the whole thing. And, but one of the boats that comes over from England to rescue people, and eventually does, has three people in it when it comes over. One of them's the boat captain, the other one's his young adult son, and the other one's a boy who's a 14-year-old school dropout who couldn't do well in school and hangs around the pier and helps out, and this boat is getting ready to go, and he said, I want to go with you, and they take him along. And he's very helpful on the trip. On the trip, at some point, they save a, 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 a soldier who's been fallen overboard or uh, in, a, in a ship that got blown up. But they save a person and they bring him on board. And then they go back to collect more. The person who's been saved is crazed in the way that people in war zones are crazed. He said, don't take me back. Take me back to England right now. And they lock him in a room so he won't bother anybody while they're going back to get more people. But he's clearly crazed. They go back, they get more people. At some point, he busts out of the room. I think, if I remember right, he busts out of the, way, out of the room in a way that knocks that 
young boy over or they scuffle and the boy falls over and he hits his head and he's clearly very hurt and he's got blood. So they're taking care of this boy and then this guy is having a little remorse that he did that but he's still crazed. And then it's a very small part of the plot but the boy dies. And um, un unbeknownst to this guy who had crashed out of being held and the when the boat is somehow righted and it's on its way back to England, the guy that's now has been crazy but now is going back to England is looking around and he says to the boat captain and the boat captain's son, where's so-and-so? Is he all right? Because all of a sudden he has a little remorse about what he had done. Remember that moment? And they, there's a moment where I think that this young adult who's so grieved about this dead boy is going to really stick it to him. He could have. And says, is he all right? And there's a little moment. And he says, yes. And I thought, uh, that's like one of those moments like you forgot also the cup. Like somebody who's really good. Not just passable good, but really good. A business of can you really feel another person's pain and inhibit yourself to have like a perfect moment to get the other person back and he doesn't do it. I think we would all do that. I do. I think that I kind of assume when I'm here that this is a self-selecting group of people who are really committed to acting out of a place of kindness. Not because it's like the right thing to do, but because it feels good to do. You know, when you go on retreat, one of the things, how many people here have been on an overnight retreat, several day retreats? Everybody, a lot of people. How many people not? Sometime, try it. One of the things that happens, you tell me if this is true for you, if I go on retreat the first couple of days for sure, as I'm sitting there in uh, this kind of protected calm, as you said, Carol, the mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter. So imagine if you're up on top of the hill and days go by and nobody talks and nobody moves fast, you walk slowly, eat beautiful food, you're not in a rush when you eat it. Eat it quietly. You take a nap. You go back. You do a little yoga. You sit again. Your body begins to feel normalized. You start to feel good. And then your mind says, you know, that uh, just before you left, you were supposed to call so-and-so back and you forgot. <laughs> so it's like a little thing. But you write it down, it's not a bad deal. You write it down, when I get out of here, I'll call that person. You sit again. Then you have a thought, you know, when I was in college and I went out with this person, I kind of led them along when I really knew it wasn't going to go anyplace. And then I broke off with them when I found another person. That really wasn't kind. I knew it earlier, and I should have done it differently. So it's like from 40 years before. 
And I am always very touched by the fact that my heart gives me a whole life. It keeps a, you know, it keeps a little record card, a little list, like a ledger. And, you know, that who knows where this person is or if they're still alive or if they even remember me or... Anyway, you can't, you can't phone them up and tell them I'm sorry about that for a million reasons. They might be dead, who knows where they are. Maybe they had a great life without you. Maybe they had a terrible life because they never got over you. Maybe you so humiliated them they never felt secure enough to find a partner, who knows. But the time for fixing that, time for fixing that is long past. So what can you do? But the only thing is you can feel remorse in yourself. You can say, you know what? I'm sorry I did that. I really want to be more careful about my motive in doing things. And what would be your motive in continuing some well, you know, you're bored or it's an interesting person or better than sitting home or some, but I really, I'm not interested as a motive. is really, with everything, the motive is what matters. With everything, the motive is what matters. Anybody notices when they go on retreat that they have a little uh, moral inventory? Presents itself. I make a list. Every once in a while, I think to myself, that's enough, you know. I've, but it's like these many things that are, lift, that are on your heart that you remember forever somehow. I actually think that that's one of the most ennobling things to think about human beings. I don't know if every human being has that. I don't. Um, sometimes people say that every human being is endowed with a spark of the divine. I don't know, but... Uh, and I tend sometimes to... Um, what do you call it when you uh, extrapolate? I love to make. <laughs> Everybody knows the two stories that I tell when I say, you even know what I'm going to tell right now. I'll tell it in 30 seconds, I promise. I was once in France, and a man helped me with my luggage under some very difficult circumstances. Without asking, he picked up my luggage and ran up three flights of stairs with it. Right, there were long stairs, there was no escalator, no elevator. And he put the luggage, the suitcase on the top step, he pointed to it, he waved to me, disappeared, that was it. And I thought to myself, see, people are really good. I didn't even have to ask for that. person just looked around, saw an you know, older woman with a big suitcase, carried it up, that's it. People are good, fundamentally they're good. See that? Human beings are really, in their fundamental nature, good. And he said, he said one phrase to me. He said, I'll help you, madam. And he ran up with it. A year ago, with the same suitcase in another subway in Paris, someone picked up my suitcase for me as the train came in the station. And I'll help you, madam. Carried it into the train, set it down right in front of somebody who pickpocketed my purse while between that place and the next stop. So that when and then ran out the, the door while it, while the train was, I mean, this is a run that they do all the time. These two people apparently they know when at when the train lurches around a certain curve, so you have to hold on to the straps. During which time, 
They open the purse, take everything that they need, passport, wallet, driver's license, credit cards. And he said the same thing, I'll help you, madam. So, uh, and that, so he did that. So I, it was a, I told it to a lot of friends, and they said, well, that's the trouble, Sylvia. You fill in more. What you know when that guy carried your suitcase up is that that guy was really nice. Not all people are necessarily nice. <laughs> I would, if, I, if I made the decision from the, from the point of view of the pickpocketing, all people are terrible, you shouldn't trust them. That's not true either. A lot of people you can trust. I think more people you can trust than not. But my Zen friends would say to me, because Zen is you just see it the way it is. Uh, Someone told the other day, I was in a retreat where someone told a story, doing, a friend of mine giving the Dharma talk, told a story about his friend Sylvia, who was sitting right there who, with me, who told a story about calling Zen Center and saying, I'd like to sit a retreat. A Sashin, and they said, you ever sit a Sashin before? And I said, no, but I'm a Vipassana student, a mindfulness student. I, I can know how to do a retreat. They said, well, you have to talk to Jeffrey. Okay, I'll talk to Jeffrey. Jeffrey's not here. So I leave my phone number. Jeffrey calls me the following day. And I wasn't there. He left the message on my answering machine. Then I called back, and I called Zen Center, and I asked for Jeffrey. And they said, he's not here. So I said, you know, I called him, and he wasn't there. And he called me, and I wasn't here. Now I'm calling him. He's not there. Maybe this is a sign that I'm not supposed to sit that machine. Person I was talking to said, "I think it's just a sign that Jeffrey's not here." So, but, but that's the kind of thing where my mind has filled in a piece of the story to match a story that I have in my mind. I'd like to think that everybody who says, "I'll help you, madam," not only that 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 if somebody says, "I'll help you," that means that all people. I don't know about all people. I don't even know that all people who are brought up in a loving way are kind people. I think it's more likely that they are. I think sometimes people have very screwy neurology and very peculiar genes from no cause of their own and different disabilities. But I actually am... This is kind of my ongoing conjecture about are people fundamentally good? Can you say people are fundamentally X good? And then there are some people who are not. Uh, I was reading somebody last night, some biologist, who said, you know, we're essentially herd animals. I mean, we, we, we congregate with other people. We don't have... That many people who want to... Uh, rhinoceroses are not herd animals. They live in a solitary way. You don't see a herd of rhinoceros usually, but people congregate together. So they, they were saying you could tell from that that they had more compassion than uh, enmity. Maybe that's true. I was, I was musing about that sometime this year about are people fundamentally this or that. I said, you know, I don't know that there's any proof that, that you could say people are fundamentally good. Some people, 
My friend said, why don't you just believe it? You'll feel much better if you do that. It's a better belief system. And the Zen people say, don't believe anything. You just see what's true. But really, those three things, seeing impermanence and seeing uh, interconnectedness and seeing um, that the cause of suffering is struggling with the unfolding the interconnectedness is, is such a relief because you see that everything is responsible for everything. Uh, the very calmness that I think that I place so much uh, confidence in was saying, "Don't worry about the situation; it'll never happen that way." But it did. So there's all kinds of forces that, that act that you don't know about. The question is not why this is happening now. As, as, this is a great place to end. As what should I do? The, really, the, the, the dharmic phrase that matches that, it's called clear comprehension of purpose. If the mind is clear and it's not distorted by views and belief systems, and enmities and prejudices, then we would make the right decision. <laughs> I, I, this is really a silly story to tell you at the very end, but <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a light-hearted way to end our time together. My husband, as many of you know, uh, took very ill four years ago in France and nearly died, but he's quite well and up and alive and living and going to gyms every day and he's in good health. Anyway, at the time, he came quite close to dying and for a situation that had been completely fixed at this point. And he was in a coma for 10 days. And you know, if you wake up from a coma, you, and you're an old man and you've had a lot and the coma has been induced so you have a lot of drugs in your system it takes you a long time to get your mind back I felt like it, he had to be uh, uh, reprogrammed like a computer had to download his life into him alright tell me your aunt's names all your cousin's names this one that one it's like rebooting the computer but uh, and he also was so physically tired I mean, weak in his limbs. I had to feed him. And it was Christmas time. And French menus included French at Christmas time all kinds of delicacies that I had never eaten before with jellied uh, pâtés, all kinds of questionable body parts of things. <laughs> but that's what came on the tray. And I would be feeding him, and I'd say, yum, open your mouth, and he'd eat it like a baby, you know, because he could chew and swallow. I'd say, yum, is that good? Yeah, great, very good, very good. And I would feed him a little more, and again, and ate all kinds of things which never in a million years would he eat. Very good, is that good? Mm, very good, very good. And then, every day, he's coming back and back more and more into himself. And you know, rebooting his own machine, and then three or four days later, here I come with the same stuff. He looks at it, and says, "Yeah, I don't need that kind of stuff." So, you know, so you see that the yuck 
is just a story that you have. When you ate it, you didn't know what it was. It tasted fine. Like, you know, I don't want to eat kangaroo. It's just like, ugh. But there, I suppose there are people who do or something. But So it's really that without the mind, without its preconditions, what's left? It's all just really interesting to think about. But I think that for us in these times, the great challenge is to keep connecting with other people. Keep talking to other people, keep telling them how you feel. And uh, I tell myself all the time that uh, this is what's happening now, let's see what happens next. Meantime, we'll do this. I was thinking about this hurricane happening in the middle of all of that. I was looking at um, children in those boats being rescued with their dog. And nobody there is thinking about politics and the budget and what's going on with Korea with missiles or what's going on with anything anywhere. Everybody's just, they have to get out of their house and their stuff is there. So I'm not here next week. I'll miss you. And I'll be gone the week after. And uh, Donald will be there because Jeff is going to bring him. But he thinks. Uh, now you're stuck, so you come. I'll tell you his, address, his phone number. And then I'll be back. I think, I think there's some... I might be here the whole October or something. I don't know. I might be here the whole October. I have to look it up. <laughs> it's all written and it's all online. But I tell people, come every week. Because it's always a nice community of people to be with. And come Saturday if you can. That'll be a nice day. What's the, what's the, um, is there a topic? Is there a topic? Um, I don't know. Yes, there's a topic. Uh, the thing is, there's only one topic. How are we going to live in these times? I think it's called The Whole of the Dharma. And I think we're going to read the Metta Sutta together. And we're going to say how that one piece of paper has all of the instructions on it for how to live a life that recognizes ethics and mind training and the development of wisdom, all in one sutta. It's one of my favorite things to do. I hope that's what we're doing. I think it's called the whole of the Dharma. And Noli Wei is a lovely person to teach with, so I hope you'll come. Maybe you'll come back. (laughs) May we all be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I saw it. I'm so happy about that. Thank you very much.